that's Johnny for you. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to be in number nine tonight, uh, and we're going to talk about Hosea. And so the Bible says, uh, well, let me, let me remind you, uh, on the bottom of your handout, uh, there are scripture references that I'll reference throughout tonight. And so instead of uh, using the paper to list all of them, I just write them out at the bottom. They are in order. Uh, so if you do want to go back and, you know, as you're taking notes, if you want to write the reference there, uh, you'll see those in order. But they are listed on the bottom of your handout, so you can always go back and see what scriptures that uh, we did use to reference that. So uh, we'll start here in Second Kings. And uh, we introduced to this man named Hosea. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 30 that Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So lots of interesting names there, but what we take away from this is that we have Hosea now who uh, rises to power. Now, he doesn't come to power by a vote. Uh, it's not a democracy. They are not voting for him. Uh, it is not that he's the most popular or the most liked. Apparently, in the moment, it's that his sword works better than Pekah's does, right? And so, he now becomes the king. And so, he is in place of uh, the king of Israel, and he reigns for nine years here in the capital city of Samaria. So he reigns for nine years in the capital city of Samaria. So this is Israel, the northern kingdom. And Hosea, as we will see, is, uh, you know, he takes kingship here. And there's not a lot that the Bible says about Hosea. So we're going to be able to really uh, zoom in on the few things that we do learn. So what happens for the nation of Israel, unfortunately, is that, you know, as we've studied over the last several weeks, that the nation of Israel, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to have any godly heritage whatsoever. Uh, after Solomon and the nations uh, split into two, we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, uh, there's only a couple of tribes in the south. All the rest went uh, with Israel. But yet, the more people that we see in Israel, and yet the least amount of people we see that are following God. So much so that a few weeks ago, if you'll remember with Asa, that there were people defecting from the nation of Israel to join Judah because of what God was doing with the nation of Judah. And there's a lot of prophets that came uh, to Judah. There's very few that came to Israel, as a matter of fact. There are quite a few who came to Judah, and uh, there were some godly kings in Judah. None for Israel after Solomon. Zilch. Zero. And so here we have Hosea, who again takes the kingship uh, by the sword. Now, if you'll remember at the very beginning, when we talked about Saul, and Saul became king of Israel. And Saul had this conflict with David and became this jealous rage, if you will. And he didn't want David, who had been now crowned king or coronated as king, uh, to be king. And so he set out in pursuit of David. Remember that story? And so Saul did his very best to kill David. And then David got into the situation where he was in a cave and he could have killed Saul. But instead, he just tore a little piece of his robe and said, hey, I didn't kill you. Because why? We talked about it because David was not going to take, and we've actually said this in a couple different series, uh, but David was not going to take kingship by his own power, but he was going to be appointed king because of what God put him in power for, right? And so, yet we see with Hosea, that's not the case. So he slaughters King Pekah and he becomes uh, king of Israel. 
Now, here he is, the king, and all of the you know, lineage of his family has not been people that have pursued God. And so what we see uh, is all of this rebellion against God. Now, it doesn't really make any sense to us if we just read the Bible objectively, right? So we say, God rescued Israel from Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. God knocked the walls down of Jericho. God gave the promised land. Look at all these things that God has done for the nation of Israel. And yet, the nation of Israel turns from God. But yet, we sit in 2021 in what has now become the minority of Christianity in America, right? And we would look and say, how, after all God has done, would we get to this point that there would be the declining attendance of people uh, going to church, that we would now be in less than the 50 percentile? What does that look like? Well, it looks like today. And so all of this rebellion manifested itself in a lack of confidence in God. A lack of confidence in God. We talked a few weeks ago about what? We talked about waiting and that no one wants to wait, but it's where we experience God and that we find God in the waiting. Even this past week, we saw the example in the baptism video with David. And David said, what? I sit on my porch and I spend time with God. It's in the waiting, right, that we experience God. And so here's this rebellion that the nation of Israel has exhibited, and it's simply because they didn't have confidence in God. And so we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 17, so a couple chapters later, we find out a little bit more about this Hosea guy. So in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, again, we're, it's reiterated here, he began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned for nine years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Not as the kings of Israel. So it was, well, he's bad. He's just not that bad. I mean, is that, ladies, for those of you that are really good at cooking, how would you feel if after you made this new dish, your husband looked at you and said, well, you know, it was bad, but it just wasn't the worst. I mean, would you say, oh, well, thank you for that, you know? Or, you know, husband, you know, man, we're out, we, we take on this task and we build something or we, we attempt to repair something and they come out and say, oh, it's a bad job, but it's not the worst I've ever seen. I mean, who wants that title? And yet, this is exactly what we learn about Hosea is that he was bad, but he, he really wasn't the worst that there was. And so there's a few things that I want to pull out, and we're just going to pull them out as we look at 2 Kings chapter 17 tonight. So the first thing that I think we can learn from his life is that comparison brings complacency. Comparison brings complacency. Now, if we were, if we were to be honest in the room, you know, if we were to say, all right, here's what I want you to do. If you compare yourself with other people... If you compare your walk with God with other people, if you compare your house with other people, if you compare your possessions, raise your hand. Nobody in the room is going to raise their hand. You're not going to admit to that. You're not going to say, well, you know, I covet my neighbor's car. I envy my neighbor's boat or what. You're, you're not going to say that. But the reality is we live in a comparison society. And social media, you know, I mean, it seems like we could use this example in every sermon. But social media beats that drum every second of every day, right? is comparison. Who's got more likes? Who's got more followers? Who's got, you know, I saw uh, one of the uh, Kardashian ladies has 150 million followers on social media. How's that even possible? Aren't there like 300 million in the United States? 
But yet, it's all this comparison, right? And, and am I comparing to someone else? Am I better than them? And what comparison does, as it did in the life of Hosea, uh, Hosea is it brings complacency. You see, the Bible says that he was not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, is this really how you want to be known? You're just not as bad as someone else. You see, for some people, I think the answer is yes. That you would say, as long as I'm not the worst, I'm okay with being bad. When did we ever settle for that type of mediocrity? But I think we've gotten to this mode and to where we, we, have, we have desensitized ourselves in effort to the point to where if we're just not as bad as the other guy. We were in Cage Cove one time, and, uh, you know, if you've ever been to Gatlinburg, you know, it's a national park, and uh, they have this, you know, beautiful national park area, and it's thousands of acres. And so, the, you know, the animals are a little more familiar with people there because you can't hunt there. And so there was a bear there that was out, and uh, it was a bear and a couple of cubs. And so we stopped, and uh, we got out. And so, you know, we got a little close. I'm like from me to Jeff over here from the bear. But there were people that were getting, you know, they were getting way up, and there was this one lady, and she's, you know, up really close with her camera. I mean, she was close. And so we were there, and, you know, Melanie and the kids, and so... Uh, I said, look, if anything goes south, all you have to do is outrun one person. That's all you have to do. The lady with the camera, if you can beat her, we're safe, right? That's the way we live life today, is that if I can just do a little bit better than somebody beside me, then I'm doing okay. It's not that we want to do our best. I could preach a whole message on that, that we don't want to do our best. We just want to do a little bit better than the guy or the, the lady that's beside me. You see, what comparison does is it looks for worth by the measure of the world. What does the world say is good? And that's what we're pursuing. The problem with that is that good always changes in the eyes of the world. What was good 10 years ago is not good today. What was good 20 years ago is not good today by the world's standards. Now, Jesus said that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the standard that we should abide by never changes. But by the, the world standards, we're always pursuing more and different and a new definition of good because the world said it always changes. You know, used to in the church world, you could set up a tent, call it a revival, and people would come from everywhere. That doesn't happen anymore. If you set up a tent, nobody's coming because it's too hot outside, right? They're just not going to do it. And so comparison looks for worth in something besides God. This is what James says about it. I love the book of James because James doesn't pull any punches. This is what he says. He says, who is wise and has understanding among you? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast, do do not be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. Again, he pulls no punches here. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You see, comparison creates jealousy, it creates insecurity, and it creates discontentment. None of those things are which fruits of the Spirit. Jealousy, insecurity, and discontentment. You see, what it does is it makes me jealous. If I'm comparing myself to you, it causes me to be jealous for what you have. You see, what jealousy does is it dethrones God's sovereignty by feeling entitled to your blessings. 
And so whatever is happening in your life, if I'm jealous, if I covet what you have, what I'm saying is, God, you've made a mistake. You've given the wrong person the blessing. Those blessings should be mine. And I'm dethroning God's sovereignty by doing it. This is all in comparison. Now, again, like I said at the beginning, if I was to ask comparison, who's good at comparing? You'd say, no, not me. I don't do that. But everybody does it. Everybody does it. It may not be intentional or conscious, but it's subconscious for sure. And it, it, and it comes from being, again, jealous or entitled to the things that you want. And so a good definition is jealousy makes everyone a thief of what you should have. Think about that. What you're saying is that you've stolen what God really intended for me to have. When I'm jealous of what you have, I'm circumventing, I'm, uh, I'm demoralizing or delineating God's sovereignty by saying God made a mistake by giving you what I want, being jealous of that. And so it makes you a thief in my eyes, right? And so how do we overcome this comparison? Well, we overcome this through faith that God has done what He is responsible for doing, that He's sovereign. So I have faith that I am who God says that I am right? And so my identity, we talk about this a lot, my identity is not wrapped up in what I have, what I possess, or what I can do in my abilities, but it's wrapped up in whose I am. And so we have to be careful about comparison because it causes us to be very complacent because here's what happens. When we compare, then we say, well, they've got more than me, or they're more talented than me, or they, you know, X, Y, Z than me. And then I say, so what it calls me to do is not try. And so then I say, well, I'm not going to put forth the effort. You know, that, that's the big thing today is, is uh, integrity, right? Integrity. And if there's no integrity, there's no trust. And if there's no trust, there's no participation. Think about that. If our integrity continues to erode in the democracy in which we live and integrity causes trust to be lessened, then guess what's going to happen? No participation. People are not going to participate in voting. They're not going to participate in social causes. They're not going to participate in any of it because they don't trust. And that's what the enemy's done. They, I mean, let's be honest. The enemy's done a phenomenal job of eroding trust in society to the point to where we don't want to participate anymore which is the last thing that we should do. So we become complacent. We see it in the church all the time. What happens is things don't go my way. God doesn't answer a prayer the way that I think He should. You know, somebody makes me mad, and so what do I do? I sit and sulk. I sit and sulk. I become complacent. And then what happens is you don't do for me what I expect from you, and then I'm upset about that, and I become complacent about that situation. You see, when we approach others through the diseased lens of self, we're always going to be disappointed. Because if I expect you to make me happy, you're going to let me down. If you expect me to make you happy, I'm going to let you down. It's going to happen. I mean, it's because we're human. You know, God put us in relationship together, but we are going to fail each other. You see, when I don't have the expectations to receive something from you, I can, I can look to the sufficiency of Jesus. And I can say, well, what I need in relationship, I gain from Jesus, and I don't have to have that from you. You see, when I don't need something from you, it changes our relationship. 
We talked about this in boundaries. When I have an unhealthy person in my relationship, as long as there's dependency on that person, I'm going to continue to exist in a, a period of unhealthiness. When I don't have dependency on someone who's healthy, it radically changes the relationship. It's the same thing with you and me. So we would all agree that, you know, we're sinners. And so if you depend on me, I'll fail. If I depend on you, you'll fail. So if I'm not depending upon you, and I expect that because my dependency is on Jesus, then guess what? I can be okay with you failing because I'll expect it. You can be okay with me failing because you'll expect it, right? And so it totally changes the game of comparison, that it's not you've got something I want, but it's that I, it, I don't need that because Jesus is enough. You see, when I need something from other people, this is when disappointment sets in. When you don't do what I think you should do, when I don't do what you think I should do, well then what happens is I become disappointed. And it's because I'm comparing you to my expectations or to the ability of someone else. And so comparison leads us to complacency. So we see, we pick up again in 17, verse 3. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. So Hosea is the king. The king of Assyria says, hey, we should fight. And so they start fighting. And Hosea became his vassal, and he paid him tribute. So basically they made an agreement. And he said, hey, if you'll leave us alone, uh, Hosea, if you'll leave us alone, I'll give you some money. And so they had this agreement that, you know, I'll pay you and we'll be good with it. Well, that, that worked out for a little while, but the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. So in, in verse 4, uh, basically Hosea said, I'm tired of doing that. I'm not giving you money anymore. For he had sent messengers to So, who was the king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So look what happened. He began to compare himself to other kings and what they had done and what they had not done. And he decided, you know what? I don't want to pay Assyria anymore. I want to be my own person. I'm going to go to Egypt, and I'm going to make an alliance with them, and I'm not going to pay Assyria anymore. So Assyria found out about it, and of course, they were very happy about it, right? No, of course they weren't. He was very unhappy about that. And so, number two, not only does comparison bring... Uh, complacency, well, then complacency brings compromise. It's, it's so amazing how this is laid out right here before us. Complacency brings about compromise. So here's what happened. They had this agreement. Hosea becomes dependent upon this agreement, and then he has this wild idea. I know what I'll do. I'll go to Egypt and I'll, I'll try to make an agreement with him. And that way, when the king of Assyria finds out about it, of course, he's going to be mad, but it won't matter because Egypt's going to back me up. And then I'm going to have somebody on my team, and then I won't have to pay him anymore. And so all of a sudden, he doesn't have to do any work. He doesn't have to get along with anybody. He can just pave his own way. That's what he thinks. If I just pave my own way, then I don't have to do the relational work of getting along with Syria or uh, with us, Syria, or negotiating with them, I'll just t take my own path, the easiest route, right? If I pay somebody else to defend me, 
Isn't that, hadn't that been some of the history? I remember there was a change like in the 90s to where it became this thing of, well, as a church, we, we can't do missions, so what we'll do is we'll pay people to do that. So we're just going to give a bunch of money, and we're going to send other people to go do the Great Commission, and we're just not going to participate in that. That's the complacency. And, and then, thank God, there's churches like Michael Memorial who said, no, the Great Commission is that we would go that we would take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we see the same thing happen here as he said, well, if I just pay somebody to negotiate, pay somebody to be part of the relationship. You see, what happens is when we focus, when our focus becomes on self-preservation in replace of the gospel presence, we become complacent. So if we're more worried about preserving ourselves than being in the presence of the gospel, then we become complacent. Because why is that? Because what does the gospel call us to do? To go to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? But what, what self-preservation says is, well, that's not safe. What self-preservation says is that's not comfortable. What self-preservation says is that's not convenient. But what we've told ourselves to believe is that, well, if we can get comfortable, if we can get things just like we like them, well, then that's where complacency is going to be our king. Comfort will be our king. So I just got back from Centra Kid, uh, which is kids camp for third through sixth grade. And uh, I was gifted with the opportunity to room with nine sixth graders. Aren't you jealous? Right? And, uh, and so I got to stay with uh, nine sixth graders for, uh, for a week. All right? We had a great time. It was awesome. And uh, so one of the activities was we got to play paintball. And so they said, if you'd like to play paintball, uh, you have to pay $15. And I said, I'll pay $100 to shoot at these sixth graders. I mean, this is going to be awesome. And so, they, uh, so we got there and we, you know, we paid and signed up. So I was there midweek and uh, the owner came up and said, hey, I don't know if y'all need extra paintballs, but it's $5 extra for another 100 paintballs. And I said, Bring as many as you have, and I'll bring my wallet. <laughs> so we get there. We bought all these extra paintballs. And so we decided that it would be the 16 students versus us six chaperones. So do the math. Not very fair, right? So we got six guys against 16 kids. So we played this game at the very beginning, and it was y'all go, kids go on one side, chaperones on the other, I'm going to blow the whistle. You've got four minutes to get to their bunker. And they've got four minutes to get into your bunker. And so, you know, we're guys, you know, we got this strategy. And so we all get together. All right, how are we going to do this? And, all right, you go this way and you go this way. And we, we, uh, we didn't plan exactly the best way because this course was made for younger, smaller people. And so uh, your barriers to hide behind were made for sixth graders, not for adults. And so, you know, we're hiding behind these bunkers trying to, to, you know, to guard ourselves. So we get into the battle. We take out uh, eight of their players. They take out two of our players. So it ends up being four to eight or something like that. So it's the team that has the most players at the end wins. Okay, we'll give that to you, children. You won. Okay, big deal. Here's what they did. Their strategy was, if we stay in this bunker, we're safe. They're not going to come get us because if we, all we have to do is just circle around the bunker and we're going to be fine. We're going to sit in here and be safe. And so we figured out their strategy. So they said, all right, let's swap sides. 
So we went to their side, they went to our side. So we get to the other side, and when we walk up to the back of their bunker, we're shooting yellow paintballs. When we get to the back of their bunker, the entire back side of their bunker is painted yellow. Instead of shooting at us, they had shot the rear end of the bunker, just shot all of their bullets into the back of that bunker. Why is that? Because they were terrified to get outside of the bunker and actually fight. They wanted to stand behind the bunker, and they were content with painting the inside of this bunker with all of their paintballs. So I was, I was thinking about this. I, I was you know, studying this about complacency, and this story came to mind. You see, here's the lie that they believed. It's a funny story. It's a great story. It's a funny story. Here's the lie that they believed, but it's also the lie that we believe. I am safest when I'm still. Don't we believe that? I'm safest when I'm still. If I just hide here in the bunker, no one's going to get me. I'm safe. I don't have to expose myself. I don't have to depend upon the people that God's put on my team. If I just hide here in complacency, no one is going to get me. How many people come every Sunday and sit in the same spot and they hide in their pew with the expectation that if I'm still, I'm safe. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. No one, the devil's not going to pay any attention to me. I'm going to receive all of the blessings and none of the risk because I'm still. And if I'm still, I'm not going to attract attention. And so we begin to believe that staying still is best. But here's the reality. The reality is that there's a battle that's being fought. There's a battle of good and evil. And you and I are supposed to be on the front lines of this battle. And there are so many people that are sitting behind the bunker with a hopper full of paintball guns ready for battle. But they say, I'm not going out. It's not safe. If I can just be still, if I can just stay in here, I'm comparing myself to all those other people that got put out. And I saw my friend who got out there in the open, and he was trying, and he got injured. That's not going to be me. I'm going to stay in here. I'm going to be still. You see, what we've done is we've compromised spirituality. You see, we've accepted a lower moral standard in our lives to live by that has lessened or even deadened our spiritual effectiveness. We're not charging enemy lines. Who are we kidding? We're not making a dent when we're standing still. We're not furthering the gospel. There's not more people being welcomed into the kingdom in our community when all we do is hide behind the four walls of our building. Is that the gospel? No, hiding, that's what most people want to do. We want to be still. We don't want to be noticed. We don't want to ruffle the uh, feathers or ripple the waters. And so as I started thinking about compromise, complacency bringing this, I started thinking about how we compromise in so many areas of our lives. Like, for instance, how we compromise with our expectations of ourselves. You see, when you first got saved, man, let me tell you, you knew it was the greatest thing ever happened to you. 
right? You knew the feeling that came over you, the way that God transformed your life, the way He changed your desires, the things that God brought into your life, the way God was moving, what it was like to experience the presence of Holy God for the very first time was something like you had never experienced before in your life. It was something, it was the most addictive thing that you had ever been exposed to. And all you wanted was more and more and more of Jesus. And you had no expectations because you had never experienced it before. And you knew that it was so much greater, that this is what God had created me for. And this is what I was meant to live for. You know the feeling if you're saved in here tonight. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You didn't have expectations for yourself. You didn't write out a five-year plan. You just said, Jesus, I'm with you. And wherever you're going, that's where I'm going to go. It was just like Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to me. Jesus came in, and he knocked everything out of the way. Amen, right? That's what happened. But here's here's what changed, is you started, listen, you started setting expectations for yourself. And you started saying, no, if I can just do this, or if I'll just do that. And you started making plans with God to start with. And God, what do you want me to do? And God, how do you want me to do it? And God, what do you want me to be a part of? But then you started saying, well, I know how God acts. And so this must be what he wants me to do. And so, and then you started little by little by little, you stopped asking God. And you started doing Jesus your own way. Look, I know, I know this. I'm not, I'm not condemning you. I'm trying to challenge you. Because what happens is we set these expectations for ourselves and we little by little begin to eliminate God from the picture because of compromise. Because we know the standard is a standard that we can never reach. That in your best day, you're still the worst Christian based on your effort and your abilities. We know that. But we've forgotten the fact that we were filled with the glory of the Lord, that the presence of holy God resides inside of us. You see, the Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the reality. Jesus became present among His people, and He dwelt. Here's Jesus. He showed us that we can be right with God right where we live. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to take a group of 500 people, and I want you to come to heaven, and I want you to experience all the fullness of God, and then I'm going to bring you back and drop you back down in Israel, and I want you to tell everybody about it. That is not what he did. That is not what he did in your life. He didn't send you off to a camp to learn how awesome he is and then put you back in your life. No, what God did is he intersected your life right where you are at, in your darkness, in your sin, in your lying, in your cheating, in everything that you do. Name all the sins. They're smaller than God because He intersected that in your life. He blew it out of the water. He met you where you're at. He met me where I'm at and said, you can be right with me right where you're at. In the middle of a sinful and godless generation, you can be present with me. That's what he did. You see, God didn't come in and say, I want to change everything about your world. What he did is he said, I want to change you in that world. But we have these expectations that we put on ourselves. You see, look what I put, that Christ didn't change everything about our world yet. It's coming. 
It's coming. He has a standard. He has a goal. It's coming. But he says, look, I want to change you in the world. Look what it says in John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world. No, that's not what he did. But that the world might be saved through him. So what does that look like for you? Well, for us to live this way, we have to allow the word of God to flesh itself out in our lives. Look, stop setting expectations of what you cannot do for God. Go back to the beginning. God, you saved me. I didn't have a five-year plan. I just said, I'm with you, and wherever you go, I'm going. Just like John said, you increase, I decrease. I'm with you, Jesus. Instead of saying, well, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do. You see, we've got to allow the Word of God to be present in our lives, but we've also got to allow the Word to be fleshed out in our lives, to walk itself out in our lives. And guess what that means? That you're going to go places you never dreamed you'd go. You're going to do things you never dreamed you'd do. Because that's who Jesus is. But we've set these expectations and we've compromised our walk because of our expectations for ourselves. It's not just for ourselves, it's also for other people. Oh, we're just as bad, if not worse, than what we expect of others. We've compromised in that. You see, what we've done is we've lowered the bar for ourselves because we couldn't reach it. And so, in, in essence, then, we lowered the bar for other people. They said, well, I can't reach it, so you can't reach it either. You see, here's the lie that I told our small group Sunday morning from Sunday morning's message about holding each other accountable. We talked about judgment. That's a hot topic, right? So here's what I told my small group. Here's the lie the devil's going to tell you. You can't hold someone else accountable because you fail yourself. And so the lie is that I've got to be the standard in order for me to hold you accountable to it. That's not true. If that were true, no one would be held accountable, Right? And so that's the lie that we say. And so we lower it for other people because we lowered it for ourselves. And we allow the easy believism and whatever other belief systems to morph itself into the gospel. And we've said, well, you bring a little bit of what you believe. It's kind of like Rome. When they took power, they said, hey, what do you believe? Good with us, bring it in. Hey, what do you believe? Good with us, bring it in. And they brought it in. It's just like the prophecy in Daniel about the iron and the clay that he gave Nebuchadnezzar. And the clay was syncretism of bringing in other belief systems besides the gospel that would infiltrate the iron and ultimately destroy it. It's the same thing that's happened in our culture today. That little by little, we've allowed all these things to come in that were not the gospel. Well, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. We're just going to let that, oh, it's not a mountain to die on. We'll let that one pass. Oh, no, I'm not going to talk about that. It's not a mountain to die on. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to stand for it. And then all of a sudden, we stand for nothing. Syncretism. The merging of the spiritual with the carnal. You see, when anything is added to the message of the gospel, the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Christ is compromised and another gospel is created. It becomes a little g God in our world today. We have so filtered down the gospel. We've watered it down. We've made it palatable. We've made it receptive. 
you know, receptive. We, we easy believism. We're not going to put Baptists on the building anymore because that repels people. We're going to call ourselves non-denominational or, or whatever you want to call it. We've done everything that we could imagine to make it more. We're seeker friendly or whatever you want to call it. But has the gospel changed? No. All we've done is we've compromised reality to fit the situation. And we've said, hey, well, the world's not going to respond to the gospel, so we got to make it easier for them to receive. Come on. That is not the gospel. But we've changed our expectations for that. You see, there's a contingency of churches that have emphasized trying harder or being a better person, living a good life as a good person, under your own power. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is you're a dirty, rotten sinner, and without Jesus, you're destined for a devil's hell. And unless you receive the forgiveness that was free that you didn't earn from Jesus, you'll never spend eternity with God the Father. That's the gospel. That's it. You see, what's happened is we've created this gospel that dilutes dependency upon Jesus, and it denies the lordship of Jesus Christ. The reality is, unless you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will spend an eternity apart from God. End of story. You can agree with it or disagree with it. You can like it or hate it. You can say it or not say it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the message. We've compromised with ourselves. We've lowered our expectations for others. And we have compromised in our expectation of God. We've compromised in our expectation of God. So I want you to think about what just happened. Hosea was paying Assyria to be friends. He decided that he needed to not do anything. He needed to pay someone, complacency, to defend him. So where does he go? Does this not baffle you? He goes to Egypt. Are you kidding me? Egypt? Where did, where did they come from? Where are the ten plagues of history known for? Where was Moses present? Where was the Red Sea parted? Where did God show up with the angel of death and saved by the blood that was over the top of the doorpost? Where did all of that happen? Egypt. Egypt. And so Hosea says, well, I know the history. Of course he does. He's the king. I know the history of Israel. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to Egypt. I'll ask for their help. Oh, yeah, because they're real friendly, right? They're the ones who chased you into the Red Sea with the iron chariots, right? Those, is that who you're talking about? You're talking about Pharaoh who wouldn't let you go? Is that the one we're talking about, the same one? Yeah, Egypt. That's right, Egypt. Instead of going to God, they went to Egypt. Egypt. I, this blows my mind. They went to Egypt. Here's what Egypt did. Egypt represented the very thing that they had been delivered from, Right? It represented the very thing that they had been delivered from. So what had they done? They had compromised their expectation of God. The God who delivered you from Egypt, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who prepared the promised land for you, the God who removed all the obstacles to receive the promised land, the God who knocked the walls down at Jericho, the God who did that and so much infinitely more than we could list. That same God is capable of relieving you 
from Assyria. Yeah, that's the one we're talking about. Yahweh, Jehovah, that's the one we're talking about. And yet, instead of going to the one who could deliver them, he went to the place that he had been delivered from. He changed his expectation of what God could do, and he lowered it to what made sense, what was rational. Who's got the most money around here? Who's the biggest country? Who's got the most people? If I go to Egypt, surely he could help me. Instead of saying, God, just like Asa said, God, I don't know how this is going to happen. Just like Jehoshaphat said, I can't do it, but my eyes are on you. Right? That's what they said, but not Hosea. You see, I think in our vernacular today, we have lowered our expectations of God. You see, the resources of God are unlimited. The resources of God are unlimited. Did you know that God can do anything? Do you really believe that? Like, He can do anything. Like, He can, he can do whatever. He could write your name in the clouds. I mean, He could do anything He wanted. He could cause Mississippi State to win the, world, the College World Series tonight. Did you know that? Anybody reading for them tonight? He could do it. He could do anything he wants. See how menial we, we make the expectations of God? Oh, if, if my favorite team wins a baseball game, then yay God. Right? So here's what I want to challenge. The resources of God are unlimited. So here's what I want to challenge you and us to stop believing. Stop believing that it's too big for him to handle. Newsflash, it's not. I don't know what you're encountering, and I don't know what mountain you're up against to climb, but it's not too big for God. I don't, if, you're in, if you're in this battle with Assyria, and you think you've got to go back to what you've been delivered from, it's not too big for God. Stop believing that you've really blown it this time. Stop believing that. It's not true. There's no sinner too far from the outstretched hand of God. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. It's not possible. Stop believing the lie that you've blown it and God doesn't love you. It's not true. Stop believing that He is unable. It's not true. Here's what we say. Well, I know God can do it, but. That's what we say. Well, I know he's able to do it, but. There's no but in that. Well, I know, well, I made a mistake, and I, I know God wanted me to do that, but. Well, I was doing this for God, but. We lower our expectations of what we think God can do. But what if you just said, he can do anything? I don't know what you're going to do in this situation, God. Instead of me praying for an outcome, I'm going to pray, God, would you work your magic will in this? Right? Would you do whatever it is you want to do in this situation? God, whatever your will is, it may seem magic to me, but it's simple to you. God, just do it. Whatever you want to do. God, would you work this out the way you see fit? But what do we do? We pray, God, if you would do this, if you would do this, if you would do this, then it would be fixed. And you know what? Sometimes God says, okay, you can have this, this, and this. Right? Remember at the first of this study, sometimes God gives us what we want to show us that it's not what we need. Remember that? 
Stop believing those things about God. You see, compromise, Tony Evans says, compromise is the cancer of the church, and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another way on Monday. This is a major problem among Christians in America today. And we don't take a stand. We don't keep standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. So don't compromise what you know to be morally correct for what is expedient. You see, Hosea said, I got to make a decision. So I know it's not right for me to go back and depend upon Egypt but I'm going to do it anyway because it's convenient. How many decisions have we made out of convenience instead of out of conviction? Right? We've, com- we've compared that brought us to complacency, and that complacency caused us to compromise. It caused us to compromise. Why? Because we believe that I'm safest when I am still. D.L. Moody said, Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets in them, they sink. So what are our expectations? I want to challenge you tonight. You need to change your expectations. You need to change your expectations for yourself You need to change your expectations for others, and you definitely need to change your expectations for God. And you need to say, God, I want want you to do what you want to do, not what I want you to do. I want to expect you to do what you want to do, not what I think you can do, because you don't know what God can do. You've never experienced the fullness of God because you can't capacitate the fullness of God. And so we just have to say, God, whatever it is you have in store for me, that I want you to go back in your heart to remember what it was like the very first moment you experienced who Jesus Christ is and what the forgiveness of sin felt like and what the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit was like and know and believe and say, God, that's where I want to live. God, I want to depend in that moment. I want to live in that moment. I don't want to have expectations for what I think you can do because at that moment you didn't know what he could do. And so he makes this agreement with Egypt. And the king of Assyria says, well, he wasn't real happy about it. And so he shut up Hosea, and he bound him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Now, it's not a point to make, but it's certainly in the text, that your decisions affect everybody else around you. And so now everybody's being attacked for three years. Can you imagine being under attack for three years? In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah and on the, uh, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So, comparison brings complacency. Complacency brought compromise. And then lastly tonight, compromise brought captivity. Now Hosea is in jail. The nation of Israel has been captured by Assyria. And tonight, well, it's the end of the Israeli dynasty. It's over. 
He's the last king. The last king to rule over Israel. Israel's done. They ceased to be a nation until 1948. All because of compromise. The nation of Israel goes into captivity. They're, they end in Assyrian captivity. Uh, Hosea is the last of the kings of Israel to dwell in the promised land. After two centuries, the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel ceased to exist as a nation. Seven out of 20 kings were assassinated. Every one of them, all were judged to be evil by God. And what happens to King Hosea? Well, that's a great question. No one knows. He goes into captivity. The nation ceases to end. We'll continue, of course, with the kings of Judah over the next few weeks. Uh, they last another 100 years. And Hosea disappears, disappears into oblivion, never to be heard from again. So the question is, well, what happened to him? It, isn't that the question that we could ask about so many people in our world today? What happened to him? Hmm. Where, where are they at? Have you seen them at church lately? Or, or maybe, maybe you see them, but they're not present. Where are they at? Where's the fruit that remains? Where's the long obedience in the same direction? You know those people that were really involved, you know, they, God saved them, God did something supernatural in their family, something happened, uh, and, and man, I'll tell you what, they were all for God. They were team God all the way. They got shirts made, they volunteered, they, they did whatever they could to be involved. If you needed them, they were there. You know, you know those people, right? Those people that are plugged in, those people that are really you know, moving for the gospel, those people that are living out, they're fleshing out their faith, they're reaching their neighbors, and then they disappear. Like I said, they, they may still be sitting in the pews, but it's been a long time since the gospel has come out of their mouth. It's been a long time since they served with pure motives. Where, where are those people? What happened? Well, can I suggest tonight that, are they in captivity? You see, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Is that what happened to them? Right, is this, is this whole Assyrian captivity thing a metaphor for sin ruling our lives? Is that what God is telling us here? That when we allow sin, when our dependence is upon anything but Him, that we end up in captivity? You see, Hosea didn't set out saying, boy, I hope I get put behind some bars. No, he made decisions based on self-preservation that resulted in him ending up in captivity. 
How many people do you know who've made decisions, maybe it's even one of us, that have made decisions in lieu of self-preservation and we've ended up in captivity because of it? You see, Paul writes a little further in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once, were, past tense, slaves of sin, have become present, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become future, present future, uh, slaves of righteousness. So we go from a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. You see, here's what I think's happened. Hosea didn't set out to be behind bars. I think people that are in captivity today, they didn't set out to be behind bars. Here's what happened. We, we started compromising. We made little, subtle changes because that's not a mountain to die on. And we allowed compromise, comparison, and complacency to be the three foremost things in our life. And what we did is we developed a system for that. And we had new standards based upon what we thought was acceptable on our expectations for ourselves, our expectations for others, and our expectations from, for God. Listen, this is true. And then we named it. And we called it religion. And we said, if we can just be religious then we'll be different from the world because we're religious. Like the statue with Nebuchadnezzar, we've got some iron, but there's a little clay mixed in. Right? And so if we can have religion, and so what happened in our world? Then we started getting what? All these different forms of religion. Think about it. Different translations of how people should pursue God. Some say, well, you got to go on missionary journeys. Some say you got to earn it. Some say you got to do certain things. You got to, you know, I'm not going to name all these things you have to do. And so all these belief systems began to come up, you know, to begin to grow. It's true. I mean, you can go and you can look at all of them, all the belief systems and their, or, uh, their origin. And it was all these different things of how we should interpret God, every one of them. And we called it religion. Did you know that the word religion comes from the Latin word which means to bind up? To bind up. The idea behind the term religion is that the devotee is bound under an obligation of some sort. Religion. So now what we've got is a world full of people that are in captivity to religion, that are under this system that if we just operate the way that's acceptable based on our expectations of ourselves, others, and God, then we'll be okay. And if I can operate at just a little bit higher level than you, I'm going to be okay. If I can just operate a little bit higher than that person that's beside me or behind me, then I'm going to be okay. 
You see, religion can easily turn into a type of spiritual bondage when we allow fears of, listen, this is what the Baptist church has done in some ways, to allow fears of hell, judgment, or demonic activity to control us and to adopt a religious mindset that says, if I don't perform or if I don't do this, there's going to be bad consequences. Pragmatism, like Pastor Tony preached on last week, right? If I don't do these things and the temptation that you struggle with then all of a sudden we, we say, well, here's this temptation. And if I follow this temptation, and, and if, I, if I address it the way that I've been taught in my religious belief system, right, then I'm going to be okay. That I can use it to control that I've got to perform a certain way. That's acceptable. And it's the same way. The Baptist church went on this, this thing that, you know, we want to scare everybody into heaven. And there was all this, well, if we just terrify you, and then we can try to present the gospel, and then you'll be saved. Instead of saying, look at the sufficiency of Jesus. Look at the God who loves you so much that he sacrificed his son on a cross. For six hours on a Friday, he hung there, and he died, and he spent three days in a tomb, and he overcame death for you to have eternal life. Is that not enough? Is hell real? Of course it is. Is the judgment and wrath of God real? Absolutely. But does it trump the goodness of God? Absolutely not. And so what we did is we built this system, and we said, well, they're not responding to the gospel, and so what we're going to have to do is use other means. And so let's bring other parts of the gospel in, and let's just focus on one part, that if you don't do what God says, well, then you're not going to be able to go to heaven. Instead of saying, whosoever will may come, right? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For God so loved the world that God is willing that none should perish. Every single word that I just said is Scripture. It's Scripture. Listen, what have we done to change the gospel? What have we done? We're all guilty of this, that we built this religious system instead of saying, I want the unfiltered version of Jesus. Jesus said to the Jews, John 8, 31, who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And look what they said. This is fascinating. They responded like many people today by saying, I'm not in bondage. I'm free. I'm not in bondage. Maybe, maybe tonight we, we get to uh, complacency leads to captivity, and you said, or compromise leads to captivity, and you said, that's not me. I'm not in bondage. The Pharisees said, no. We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Read it, John 8, 33. How is it that you say we'll become free? Jesus, you're wrong, man. You're wrong. We're not slaves to anybody. We've been freed. You're wrong about me, Jesus. The reality is, it's not just a few sins. It's not just a few sins that make you a sinner, but you sin because it's your nature. 
it's not just a few bad things that you did that made you a sinner. You were born bent towards hell. You were born bent towards sin. I was born bent towards sin. Read Romans chapter 5. It wasn't the one thing that made you bad. You were born into sin. You were born into slavery. I was born into slavery to sin. And this temptation, the the temptation that we struggle with, that, that temptation shouldn't have power over us. You see, the only power that temptation has in our lives is the power that we give it. It's the power that you give it. So here's this slavery that Jesus is talking about, and he says, hey, guys, don't you want to be free? Don't you want to be free? You see, the truth is that you and I sin even when you don't want to. Paul said in Romans 7, things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. It's the truth. The truth is that you and I desire things that you don't want to desire. It's the truth. It's the lure of captivity. It's the lure of sin to try to draw us in and try to get us back into Egypt and to believe that if we were just in Egypt, man, they were giving us straw for bricks, Moses. If we were just there, we were slaves, but at least we were happy slaves. That's what they thought, right? We were working 14-hour days, but man, they gave us straw. So what is our response to this reality? That the gospel is unfiltered, that Jesus didn't come for your version of Christianity, that Jesus didn't come to establish some system of religion, but that Jesus came for the gospel, that he is the gospel, that the gospel means good news, and the good news is there is a way out, that you are destined for hell apart from Jesus Christ. But yet God, who's rich in mercy, right, forgave you, and that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That's the good news. That apart from Jesus, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That the payment for your sin and for my sin is eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. That's reality. But the gift of God, the same verse, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's good news. The good news is not come do it my way because I've figured it out. But the good news is do it Jesus' way because he created the way. that we don't have to live in captivity, that sin no longer has dominion over you. These are all realities, that that you and I are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ who loves us, Romans 8, 1, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans chapter 8. Nothing. That's the reality of who Jesus is in your life, that we don't have to compromise to fit in because we were never meant to fit in. That we don't have to be complacent in order to be accepted because we were aliens to start with. That we don't have to be satisfied to live in captivity because we were never created to live that way. That Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciple. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what's our response tonight? 
Well, our response is this, not that we would desire more, not that we would become less of a sinner, but that we would surrender to Jesus and Him alone. That we would stop trying to be better, that we would stop trying to pick the lock of captivity, but that we would rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. And as Pastor Tony said last week, that we would just say, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, everything that I know about myself, I want to give to you. Jesus, everything that I know about myself, I want to submit to your lordship. I don't want to have expectations because I don't know what you want to do. I just want to follow you. I just want to be faithful. I don't want to make, I don't want to make contracts with the enemy. I don't want to depend on, on past deliverance that you brought me from. You're moving me to new things. You're bringing me to new pastures. You're taking me to new promised lands. That's where God's taking us. And we've settled for so much less than that. And we've been content to sit behind the bars of captivity because we're getting three square meals a day. And in reality, we're missing the beauty of what the gospel is. It's not the three square meals a day that keep you alive. It is Jesus. And so I just want to challenge us tonight. Don't compromise. Stand on truth. Stop being complacent. And don't be satisfied to be in prison to sin. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful.